Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community that is about discovering fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. You know, I think one of the most amazing moments in the development of a human being is when, that, when a baby utters his or her first words. And parents wait for that moment with bated breath, right? For those who've had children, they try really hard to accelerate the speaking and then end up regretting that later on when the speaking doesn't stop. Initially, though, we try really hard to accelerate the speaking. And I know moms and dads who spend hours coaching their kids to make sure the first word is mama or dada. Right, you guys know this, depending on who's doing the coaching that day. And that always seemed kind of silly to me, so I've never made a big deal out of the fact that all my kids said dada first. I mean, it's just, it's not a big deal to me. I don't really point much attention to that. But soon after they learn the dada and the mama, children learn the next word. Anyone want to guess what it is? Oh, no, exactly. Wow, psychologists tell us it's a really important word. They say it helps the child set boundaries and, and assert their sense of identity and the sense of autonomy. Psychologists say this is a good stage, this no stage, although I'm convinced that every psychologist has never had a child because the no stage is not fun. But it always happens, and right around this time, kids pick up another word. Someone said it, and they use it all the time when someone touches something that's theirs. When someone tries to wear some of their clothes, you're already saying, you're like, oh, mine, 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 mine. Yeah, it's happening, right? They say this word. It becomes their favorite word, that word mine. Some of you have seen the Nemo movies with the, uh, the seagulls, mine, 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 right? That's them. That's kids. Or is it just kids, right? They say, my toys, my stuff, my room, my food, mine. Some people go to their grave, friends, and it is still our favorite word. We might not say it out loud as much as little kids, but it sure can be the word that marks our lives. The word mine is on our wallets, on our bank accounts, it's on our homes, it's on our vehicles, it's on our time, it's on any resource we have, mine. And ultimately, This is just the truth about human beings. The day will come when we will say one of two words to God from the core of our being. There'll be one of two words that we utter when all is said and done. Either we will say to God, yours, God, everything. Everything I have, everything I am for you, it's yours. Or you will say to God, mine. I give you nothing, I submit nothing, I'm holding it all, leave me alone. And the day will come when every human being will say to God one of two words, yours, or we say mine. Those are two real important words. And this weekend, we're going to be looking at some important, uh, some important moments in the life of a man called King David, who lived hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus, but was the second king over the nation of Israel. And we read about his story in the Bible. And David, although absolutely imperfect, seemed to grasp the whole truth that everything God is yours. And not just at the end, but throughout his life, there seemed to be this mark of open-handedness, that it was all God's and everything he had belonged to God. Everything came from God and everything was distributed by God. And right to the end of his life, he lived with kind of this generous heart. Like I said, David was flawed and made some really bad decisions throughout his life. But I'll tell you one thing David got right. He seemed to have a generous heart. David loved to give and he loved to share. And here's why I think this is so important for us today. I think many, many Christians get defeated in this area of our lives with Jesus, in the areas of generosity. I think a lot of people in churches wonder, 
Does what the Bible teaches about possessions and material possessions and all that mean that I'm just supposed to live with nothing? Am I supposed to give everything away? Should I feel guilty that I have a house and that I drive a car or two or three? Like at what point should I feel guilty about this or should I feel the sense of a, a, a regret at how my life has gone or should I enjoy anything? There's a whole bunch of misunderstanding about this and I think a lot of people just kind of give up and then we drift into whatever standards our society has regarding our possessions. And my personal opinion is that when Paul, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he says, don't let this world squeeze you into its mold. So there's kind of two ways of living. There's the way of the world, which leads to selfishness, and then there's the kingdom of God, which leads to open-handedness. I think in our day, there is no area of life where Christians get more squeezed into the world's mold than in the area of generosity and material possessions in our stuff. And that's not what God wants for us. His friends, we all form attachments of all kinds. It just depends on what kind of attachment and with what we are attaching to. And a life of freedom lived in Jesus Christ, and again, wherever you are on the spiritual journey of wondering about Jesus or following Jesus, we are making decisions every day about the nature of our attachments, of what will I make my life, and what am I attached to. And the truth of the Scriptures says this, that the only attachment that leads to fullness of life is when we attach ourselves to Jesus and find his life fully satisfying. The pursuit of anything else to satisfy the longing of the heart, the discontent of, the, of our lives, will leave us just wanting more. The truth of the scripture says, Jesus is our all-sufficient one, and it's only in him that we can find fulfillment. Well, I think David has something to teach us about all this. Like many in our society, probably more than most of us, David was entrusted with a whole bunch. Like he had material possessions of enormous amounts. And he wasn't called to give all of it away. But also somehow that stuff didn't get a hold on his heart. And he developed one of the most generous hearts of anyone we read about in Scripture. So I think he can be a model for us, a really important one, to help us get clarity on this question. What does a generous heart look like? I mean, I really lived out in these moments today. What does a generous heart look like? What does an authentically Christ-honoring, generous heart look like? And how do I know? if I'm growing in this area of stewardship and being generous. I think David has a bunch to teach us, and there's so many, so many aspects to the stories around his generosity. We looked at one story last weekend, and how that pointed us to not to be like David, but to follow Jesus wholeheartedly as the one who gave everything. Well, today we're going to look at David with two more stories out of his life. A number of passages in Scripture today. I encourage you to follow along on the screen. If you have a Bible, you can turn there to 1 Samuel 30. Uh, verse 9, 1 Samuel 30, verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, you can ask the person next to you to share and see how generous we are as a church when it comes to sharing the things that we have. Maybe you've got a Bible on your phone. If you don't have a Bible, all the scripture we're talking about today will be coming up on the screen. Two episodes in David's life as indicators of a generous heart. First one is this. I believe a generous heart is motivated by the needs of others. A generous heart is motivated by the needs of others. You know, one way to find and to know if your heart is developing in generosity is you'll find yourself more moved by the needs of people around you than moved by our own sense of discontent. It's like, what are the motivating factors of my life? There's a classic example of David doing that. So King David uh, had this little community of people, of those who were in debt, in distress, 
and discontented. That's what the Bible describes the people around David. They were in debt, they were in distress, and they were discontent. Imagine that being the moniker of your church or small group. Oh yeah, our group, we're totally in debt, we're distressed, we're discontent. Well, this group had established a refugee village in a place called Ziklag. That's just the location that they were at. David hadn't ascended the throne yet, and so he was kind of on the run, but he had this group of people that were gathering around him, and they set up a little village. And they go off one day, David and his men, to raid the Philistines around them, because that's how things worked in those days. You just go and take things from other people to establish your own village. And a group of Amalekites came and burned the village down. So David and the men leave Ziklag, A group of Amalekites come and they burn down the village. They carry off all the wives, all the children, all their possessions. David and the men come back from their little raiding party and they were ready to stone David because of what happened. It's like, you took us out of here and left it defenseless and now we have nothing. But David prayed and God said, you know what, I want you to pursue the Amalekites and bring back from them what was taken from you. Now here's what happens. The men are ready to stone David for his bad leadership. They'd come back from a long campaign against the Philistines. They were fatigued and demoralized by the loss of their home. But David rallies them. Let's look at verse 9. David and the 600 men with him came to the Besor Ravine, where some stayed behind. 200 men were too exhausted to cross the ravine, but David and 400 men continued the pursuit. So what's going on here is that David avoids being stoned by them, which is a good move on his part, good leadership at that moment. He gets away from that, and he leads these 600 men on a forced march south. And they were pushing really hard for about 15 miles or so. And they come to this ravine. It was a a dried-out creek bed called the Besor, the Besor Ravine. And about a third of the men say, we can't go any further. We can't go another step. We're already wiped out. We were wiped out when we got home and found our village had been plundered. And now after this march, we have nothing left. We haven't got the strength. We haven't got the spirit. We're done. So David has these 200 men stay with the supplies. Now remember, remember these men. They stay with the supplies. In verse 11, they come, uh, David and the other men cross the ravine. And we're going to come back to these guys that stayed with the stuff. Like I said, verse 11 and following... David is off pursuing these Amalekites with 400 men, and they stumble upon an Egyptian man who's been left in the desert to die, a man who was exhausted and starving. He'd been left there to perish. He'd been in the desert for three days and three nights, no food, no water. He would have been near death, and he was too much trouble for his owner to keep him in employ, so he certainly couldn't expect much from a stranger. He'd just been left there in his weakness. But David shows this generous heart towards this absolute stranger. And David says, what's mine is yours. And he gives this poor person water, gives him some food to sustain him, and gives him his strength back. And the man turns out, this Egyptian man, to be a slave of this Amalekite group that David and the men are pursuing. And David says to this Egyptian, so the Amalekites have taken our family. Will you lead us to them? And of course, the man who was left by the Amalekites to die in the wilderness says, I will tell you exactly where these people are. Let me show you. And he's only too happy to do that. In verse 16 now. So he led David down and there they were. The Amalekites scattered over the the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they'd taken from the land of the Philistines and from Judah. David fought them from dusk until evening of the next day and none of them got away except 400 young men who rode off on camels. And fled. In verse 19, nothing was missing. 
Young or old, boy or girl, plunder anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the river, other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. Now that sounds like the end of the story, but it's not. Remember those 200 guys that stayed back? Uh, they weren't strong enough to cross the ravine. Verse 21, Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow him and were left behind at the Bazaar ravine. They came out to meet David and the people with him. Imagine their response. They see David coming back, wives, children. They're going to be reunited with their loved ones, all their possessions. As David and his men approached, he greeted them. But all the evil men and troublemakers among David's followers, that is among the 400, said, because they did not go out with us, we will not share with them the plunder we recovered. However, you can have your wife and kids. You just can't have any stuff. We don't want your wife and kids, but you don't get our stuff, right? These men that the text calls troublemakers essentially say, it's not fair. We did the work. We earned this. These guys stayed behind. They're slackers. And if they get a share, it means I get less. If I open my hand, they're going to get stuff that they don't even deserve. So we're keeping the plunder to ourselves. They look at the 200 men who were exhausted, had nothing left to give, and stayed behind, and they see undeserving parasites who are simply going to eat into their profits. No way. They say, we're not giving anything. And that's kind of the way the world works, isn't it? Generally in the world, when we see people in need, the way the world works is to say that giving them anything would threaten my fulfillment and security. Well, I don't want to give to them. It takes the work ethic out of them. Or if I end up being open-handed with this, it means I'm going to have less for that rainy day when it may come. See, we live in a world that says the secret to fulfillment and security is accumulation and more stuff, and giving to others means less stuff, so I'm not going to do it. But look at David in verse 23. David replied, No, my brothers, you must not do that with what God has given us. He's protected us and handed over to us the forces that came against us. I love the courage here. Who will listen to what you say? He's speaking to the troublemakers now. He's basically saying, you're talking nonsense. No one's listening to you. The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All will share alike. And David made this a statute and ordinance for Israel from that day to this. Establishing a kingdom on generosity. So what does a generous heart look like? I want you to notice in this text the connection between David's gratitude to God and David's desire to be generous. David says to the men, to the 400, you're thinking about possessions all wrong. You're thinking about resources from the wrong perspective. You know, we were all once a group of discontented, indebted fugitives on the run. And now we have accumulated things but we only have it because God has been gracious and generous to us. So how can we not be gracious and generous with others? Here's what he's saying. When David has a financial choice to make, his starting point is to think about how gracious and generous God has been to him. And then he asks, how can I be like God in this regard? He starts from a position of knowing that he's received everything. And some of us get caught in this trap, well, it's my job, I can decide. How did you get the job? Who gave you the skills? Who gave you the breath in your lungs? Who gave you the capacity to work or earn or anything else like that? That's what we're saying. It's all coming from God anyway. And so we need to model the very character of God and how we respond. And I'll tell you, friends, anytime we face a financial choice or a choice about our resources, 
Whatever those resources are, if we start by thinking about how gracious and generous God has been to us, it's hard to not want to be gracious and generous to others. Because that's what a generous heart does. But our world doesn't work that way. There's this Harvard economist. His name is James Dusenberry. There's a good handle. And after the Second World, War, Second World War, he wrote a classic discussion about what drives North Americans' financial behavior. And it's a phrase that he came up with that he became famous for. He's the guy that originated the phrase after World War II, keeping up with the Joneses. You've heard of that phrase. We must have what we see. If the Joneses have it, then I've got to have it. In that post-World War II era, when the economy was getting back on track and there seemed to be an abundance in North America, this economist looked at it and said, we have a problem developing here. He says, we're all competing for one another for what we don't have yet. And we do crazy stuff. We kill ourselves to have it. We end up working at jobs we don't like to make money we don't need to buy things we can't use to impress people we don't even know. Like, that's the pursuit. And even then it's not over, because what do you do when the Joneses refinance, right? Well, now you've got to keep up with that. But what we do is we just don't play the game at all. We pray and bless the Joneses and move about our business. Decide that we're going to stop, stop comparing ourselves to what others have or how they've accumulated it. Decide that we're not going to acquire anymore based on what neighbors have or coworkers have or the advertisers tell us we need to be happy. We begin to practice gratitude for what we already have. So you're motivated more by the needs of others than by that personal discontent that can never be satisfied once you start playing the game. It's don't join the game at all. Be part of a different kind of kingdom. One of the ways you know if you have a generous heart is you find yourself increasingly motivated by the needs of others over a chronic sense of discontent. And friends, I get it. Compassion fatigue is a real thing. You know, we get inundated with requests and all those things for money, and a part of it is we just want to hold back. But the answer is not to hide and not to hoard. That's not how to deal with compassion fatigue. Dealing with compassion fatigue when we're responding to the needs of the world means taking what we have and then listening to the promptings of the Spirit, God, what would you have me do with your resources in this regard? And I'll manage it. God, I'll manage, I'll steward your resources. So we're never having to decide, well, do I just give it all away or portions? We can live in responsiveness to the Spirit. And sometimes God will say, no, you don't have to give towards that. I've put that on someone else's heart. Or you don't need to respond to it in that way. Or there's the prompting, yes, it's time for you to respond. So instead of feeling like the whole thing is our responsibility, we live as people responsive to the Spirit. Real quick, a second story found in 2 Samuel 24. The second facet of a generous heart is that we see a generous heart looks for opportunities to give. The proactive or intentional position of people. One of the ways you can know you're developing a generous heart is you start looking for opportunities to give, not just opportunities to acquire. I mean, think about the mad rush for Bitcoin a while ago. It was all about, like, you've got to acquire, and it didn't go so well for whoever invested there. But it was the starting point of, what do I have to do to acquire? What if we put the same energy into, what do I have to do to be generous today? In 2 Samuel 24, there's been this really destructive plague. Lots of people suffering in Israel. And God puts forth his hand and stops the destruction. Jerusalem is saved. And we pick up in verse 18, David is now king in Israel, not like our previous story. On that day, 
God went to David and said to him, Get up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord commanded. He went, uh, commanded him through Gad. When Aruna looked up and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here's the threshing sledges and ox and yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Aruna, gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, May the Lord your God accept you. I love this next verse. But King David replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. Here it is. For I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. I'm not taking a freebie on this one. What does a generous heart look like? Now on the surface, this is really horrible financial planning on David's part. Aruna is offering to give him everything for free. And God would end up with it all anyway, so what's the difference? What difference does it make who pays? And David says, this is more about my heart. I know, the, I know that my heart can be guided in wrong directions. So I know that this has to come from a posture of generosity. It's my decision to honor God. It will not come from my heart to God in the same way if it just costs me nothing. You see, friends, when we give of our possessions, when we give of our time, when we give of our resources, we're actually giving away a little part of ourselves. And my heart changes. It gets a bit freer from the grip of stuff. I get a little more devoted to God and less to my things when I'm free and open-handed. And I want that kind of heart. And David said, I want that kind of heart, so let me pay. I won't give to God that which costs me nothing. This isn't supposed to be easy. It's a countercultural move. David is looking for more opportunities to give toward God. And this is so countercultural because our world is obsessed with opportunities to acquire. We live in a world that's obsessed with opportunities to gain and keep, but the sign of a generous heart is that you begin to look for opportunities on purpose to give. You start looking for them, and they're there all the time. Because when we give, we actually set in motion a spiritual dynamic that can't be held back. Amazing things start to happen. They happen to the one that receives the gift. They happen in the heart of the one who gives. They happen to the people watching it happen. You can't give without setting this kind of spiritual dynamic in motion. Generosity breeds generosity, but it takes people going first and saying, we're going to break the natural mold. And friends, when this kind of generosity starts, when a church gets a hold of what it means to look for opportunities to be generous with all that God has given us, you know what happens? The kingdom of darkness gets rolled back just a little bit further. There's a little crack in the kingdom of darkness when somebody gives because giving is at the core of the operational principles of the kingdom of heaven. It moves against the ways of this world and says, we're actually establishing ourselves as an alternative community within the world to bring good and light and joy and peace and healing to so much that's broken. That's the core of who God is. And what God does is he gives. It's a divine act. We participate with Jesus every time we choose generosity. Generous hearts increasingly seek opportunities to give. And these are all around us. There's opportunities to give in moments and at times when you don't even see it coming. But when it happens, it sets in motion a dynamic that's so hard to stop. And I was praying a lot about this this week because, I mean, it's always 
risky when someone like me, I said this last week, talks about money and resources, but I honestly believe that God is wanting to do a good act, a, a movement of goodness within our church as we loosen the grip on our things and hold more tightly to Jesus. He's breaking us free from stuff that's not good for us. He's setting us free to live. You know, I was thinking this week, for all sorts of reasons in our day, we kind of have this phenomenon where churches get born quick and they grow fast and they flourish and they seem to reach one generation. And that one generation kind of holds real tight. And when that generation dies out, that church seems to die with it and it just seems to go in a cycle. Well, what if we said here, I mean, Stony Plain Alliance Church has been a church for more than 80 years, but you know, we're always one generation away. If one generation in this church decided we're going to grip, hold, hold grip and hold tight to our stuff and not give, the whole thing ends in one generation, even after 80 years. Well, what if we said, not on our watch? We don't want to do that. We want a different legacy than having one generation of significant impact, that we want to be part of a church that is built strong for the next generation, that is stronger for the next generation than it is for this one that it's stronger for our sons and daughters and grandchildren than it is for us. It's stronger for a generation that some of us may never know. But when we open our hands and are generous towards the work of God, we're establishing a foundation that allows this to flourish for generations to come. And what if we gave with such a heart that we created a spirit of generosity that became a legacy to our sons and daughters and their sons and daughters and generations to come after that that we'll never know? So that in a world where for centuries upon centuries, human beings have been saying, mine, 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 that there becomes a community of human beings that gets raised up who have learned to say to God and to people that God loves so much, God, it's yours. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory. Yours is the resources. And it is simply our privilege to be open-handed, God, as you are. Now, that's the kind of church I think we'd all love to be part of. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite Mitch up. Mitch, where are you? Are you down there or are you in the back? Where's Mitch? Hi, Mitch. Come on up. Mitch was playing guitar and leading us in worship today, and he's got a story to tell us. And um, We're going to give him a moment. Are you going to grab your guitar on the way over and sing it for us, or are we going to talk? No, we're just going to talk. Last weekend, we heard from Wanda a story of being open-handed with a situation in her life and a family she was blessing. And uh, do you want to grab your mic and come on over? Yeah, it feels weird for me to talk to you back there, so it's awkward. This is Mitch. Everyone welcome Mitch. How you doing? Mitch, how long have uh, you been part of Stony Plain Alliance? What's your connection um, history with this church? Roughly uh, 10 years-ish, give or take, yep. with a five-year break in between when we lived in Grand Prairie for a while, but we've always felt, my family and I, Larissa... We've always, always felt that SPAC's been our home church, and whenever we were away from it, we could never find something that quite compared to it. So when we moved back, it was, and it was a, a very easy decision to say we're going back to church. It was yeah. very, very good. Well, we're happy to have you part of this church, and how you lead us in worship is, is incredible. But something happened back in November for you. You were sitting in a service. You weren't, I don't think you were leading that Sunday. And something happened to you in church that day. Why don't you just tell us about what was going on? Well, we had been doing the giving liturgy every week for a while, and uh, it was hitting me in the same way over and over again of, I need to be generous with my money, generous with my money. I need to, like, I just thought of it in financial means. And then, um, for some reason, it hit me different that day. Um, we, our friends, 
had just had a, a baby and they were ill. Yeah. So this, I don't know if you remember, in November, everyone had a cold that just didn't want to go away. Um, and they've got two littles. So for some reason, the Spirit moved me to, right in the middle of the giving liturgy, pull out my phone and text them and say, hey, how are you guys doing? And the response I got was, well, we're, we're sick, we're not doing well, we're a little worried. And I don't know if you remember this as well, in November, there was a shortage of children's medicine, children's Tylenol and Advil. And we had my family, and Larissa's parents, Larissa's grandparents, whoever could go to the store, if you find some, buy some. Like, it's, it's that it's rare. The scarcity was quite high. So I offered some of ours, even though I knew that we probably will need it because our daughter, when she gets sick, her fevers go up to 40 degrees and she gets quite ill. But I thought, they got a newborn. They need this as well. So I offered some to them. And um, I just felt like, it's not just a financial thing. It's an open-handedness, a generosity of things that you have. So like Wanda last week with her, her fabrics. Um, it was a, an opportunity for me to say, I'm here for you if you need me. Whether that be time, whether that be the Tylenol, whether that's just to talk, I'm here for you. Yeah. What I love about that, which is like, you could have said, well, we need this more than them in some way, right? And yet you have to think through, you're sitting in church, you're saying this giving liturgy that we say every weekend, and something prompts you to say, I'm going to give out of something we have abundance for to them. And what did that feel like at first? Did that feel like, were you scared to do that? Did you feel inspired? Like, what was happening in your own heart? Your dad sitting here trying to do that. What was it like? Well, at first I was like, well, I don't know if I should do this because, like, if Naftali gets sick again, her fever's like, yeah. they skyrocket. But there was a calmness in my heart and in my mind that just said, no, this is, you need to, this is something that you need to do. Yeah. And from that moment on, actually, every time we do the giving liturgy, I don't think of it as a financial thing anymore. I think of it as, well, because uh, I'm in my classrooms, I'm a junior high teacher, and a lot of these kids that I teach just need someone to listen. Yeah. So I've been using my, the resources of time after school at lunch, like, hey, I'm here for you if you need to talk. I just, it's something that's so much more than just your monthly tithing, your, yeah. your, your financial situation. It's, I took it, uh, every time I read it now, I think of it, okay, how, what in my life can I share with someone else? What can I do for them? Even though it's taking away from me, it's making me show up late at home because I'm staying till 4.30, yeah. sometimes talking with a student who needs just someone to listen. But we have an understanding at home that these things happen and I'm generous with my time when I feel it needs to be, when, I've, when I'm pushed to do it. And uh, it's just, it's changing the way in which I, I, I'm living my everyday life. Yeah, and it sounds like it's more free as opposed to trying to accumulate and keep it for ourselves to live that open-handed life, you feel more free and less encumbered. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast today. To discover more about Stony Plain Alliance Church and its ministries, visit our website at spaconline.com. Grace and peace.